Our um, scripture passage this morning is Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, 2, verse 4. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood up right and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John and all the people, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus whom which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive unto the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. 
And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you're at work building your church the same as you were back in, in Acts chapter 3. And Father, we just um, pray that as Tom speaks, that you will speak through him, that we would receive your message, and that you would work in our lives, and that we would be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It's only fair that I should make all of you stand up so long when we're in a passage about someone lame who was made to walk, right? When, uh, when we first began this series in Acts, uh, I talked about two great handoffs, the two greatest handoffs of all time. Uh, the first of those two greatest handoffs was that the Father handed off the revelation of God to the incarnate Son. The second of those two greatest handoffs of all time was when the resurrected Jesus handed off the creation and equipping of his church to the Holy Spirit. In this passage, we see the handoff completed. Uh, I had a different title that I started with that's in your bulletin. Uh, the, the humbled leap, the exalted languish, and the author of life lives. Um, uh, that's a decent title for this passage, but, but what I realized as I continued to just spend a lot of time in this passage this week is that this is, this is a marvelous threshold. Uh, for the church, because in this passage, <laughs> what we see is the apostles doing the same stuff that Jesus had been doing in all respects while Jesus was on earth, um, except, of course, that they weren't God in the flesh. But bear with me. In this passage, we see Peter and John bearing the same spirit as Jesus acting in the same power as Jesus, proclaiming the same message as Jesus, and the message is Jesus. They perform a miracle in this passage. God performs a miracle through them that's very much like the miracles of Jesus that we saw over and over during the time that, that Jesus was on earth. The four Gospels record numerous instances in which Jesus performed miraculous physical healings and other miracles that could only be attributed to, uh, to sovereign supernatural power 
over creation and over the hearts of human beings. Not the, not the Bush League kind of stuff that you see televangelists doing. Not someone saying, you know, my left leg used to be half an inch shorter than my right leg, and now they're the same length. Not someone being raised up out of a wheelchair by two burly helpers of the pastor while they stand there, and then they release, and they're, they're standing very close by to make sure it doesn't fall again. And you don't know what happens afterward. They walk them off the stage behind a curtain, and that's all you see, right? No. This is the real deal. And when Jesus, when Jesus healed someone or performed any other miracle, anyone who wanted to keep other people from noticing had a huge task on their hands, right? Now in Acts chapter 3, we see the apostles of Jesus doing the same kinds of miracles. I want to be very clear about this next point, and that is that they are doing, that Peter and John did this miracle and all the other miracles that were performed through the apostles by the same power that, that enabled Jesus to do them. Now, a lot of people have trouble with that because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and they figure, okay, well, Jesus, he didn't need any other power. But, beloved, when Jesus took on our humanness and came from heaven to earth. And Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself and took the form of a bondservant and being found in the likeness of a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus emptied himself, one of the things that he emptied himself of was independent, autonomous power over creation. And if you don't believe that, look at Luke chapter 4, for a minute and verses, we're going to look at verses 18 to 21, go to Luke 4, when Jesus uh, came into the, into the synagogue in his own hometown of Nazareth, verse 14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom... He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. It was a scroll. And he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, the eyes of all were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus declared very directly that the power by which he spoke the words God assigned to him to speak, the power by which he performed every miracle that he performed was by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus, when he came from heaven to earth, made himself as we now are in order that he would indeed be the forerunner for all that we do on this earth, for all that we as as his followers do on this earth. He didn't have to do that. Jesus did that by choice. He did that by the divine de decree of the triune God. 
in order that he might become as we now are. I think that's magnificent because that tells me that it is indeed truly the case that that everything God requires of me in, in this life, he empowers me to do by the very same power that enabled Jesus. And that same, the very same thing is true of you. The apostles did miraculous works by the same power that had enabled Jesus, and they did those works for the same purpose. I mentioned last time that signs and wonders, signs and wonders in both Testaments always have the purpose of attesting to the message of God and the messenger of God. They validate the truthfulness of the message, and they validate the authority, the God-ordained authority of the messenger who bears the message. That's really important, too, because people, if people don't get the purpose of signs and wonders right, they, they come up with all kinds of bizarre things that we witness all over the place in professing Christendom. You would do well if sometime to, to go through, scan through both, both Testaments of the Bible, look at, find miracles, and look at how often the miracle precedes a message. How often a miracle is, is, sets the stage for some proclamation that God makes through his people or through his son. And in the New Testament, it's always the same message. The message is Jesus. It's always about him. Now, you could make a very strong case that in the Old Testament, the same is true. Uh, Jesus said to the, in John chapter 5, he said to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you find eternal life. Well, let me tell you, it's these that speak of me. The whole Bible. The purpose of the message that follows the miracle now, we talked about the purpose of the miracle, to attest to the message and the messenger. The purpose of the message that follows the miracle is to glorify Jesus and to turn hearts to him. To glorify Jesus and to turn hearts to him. The negative purpose of the message for those who persist in rejecting Jesus is to confirm their condemnation until and unless they put their faith in him and him alone. Acts chapter 3 opens with, uh, and, and by the way, let me give you, give you my basic outline here. Acts chapter 3 opens with a miracle, but we're going to talk about three things here in this passage. The miracle, the message, and the outcome. The miracle, the message, and the outcome. First, the miracle. Peter and John are heading to the temple at the hour of prayer in the afternoon. And as they approach the temple compound, they come upon a, quote, a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb. He, he came out of, out of the womb lame, unable to walk. He had been placed in the same spot outside the gate called Beautiful, one of the entrance points to the temple compound. Same spot every day for untold years, very likely for decades. And so even though very many people who came in and out of the temple didn't know this man's name, didn't pay him much attention, everybody had seen him. Everybody had seen him. 
It's interesting that that it, it appears that he's careful not to look directly at Peter and John as he asks for alms. I think that's just kind of a courtesy. He's trying not to put them on the spot. But Peter and John stop as, as they encounter this man asking for alms. And, and what they do is very instructive and, and to me personally very convicting. I don't know if there's anyone else here who is as wretched as I am, but when I come up to an intersection and there's a, someone standing there holding a sign and begging for money, I tend to avert my eyes. I, I look everywhere except in that person's eyes. And the funny thing is I never do that with anybody else. I don't do that under any other circumstances except maybe a salesman. Peter and John fix their gaze on this man. They zero in on this man. They are very deliberate about what's going on here. <laughs> and they say, look at us. And so this, this lame man looks up and he looks right in their faces. And Peter says to him, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, what I do have, I give to you. <laughs> now, Peter, Peter and John were not lying about this, and this in itself is significant. These guys had been fishermen, right? They had left their profession behind. Their boats were still up there on the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> they left their profession behind in order to follow Jesus. They, they weren't even tent makers like Paul. They were dependent, they were dependent on the, the generous gifts that came from God through his people. And so when they come up to this man, they say, I do not possess silver or gold. They're telling the truth. But the wealth that they had to share with this man was more valuable than the sum total of all the accumulated wealth that has ever been seen on this earth. And that's what they had to offer to him. You and I must not forget that. There'll be many, many situations in which you are not able to provide the material help that you would like to provide. And as you may be very well aware in this day and age, you and I become aware of needs even on the other side of the world in real time, and they're huge, enormous needs. You're not going to meet all of them. You're not going to meet more than a very tiny fraction of them on the material side. But beloved, what you and I have to offer to every person on this earth who doesn't know Jesus is greater wealth than has ever been seen in the material realm. We have been granted the unfathomable riches of Christ, and we get to give that away as agents of Jesus. Uh, so we should be bold, we should be delighted to fix our gaze on those who need Christ, no matter what their circumstance. Now, Peter grabs this man by the right hand and he starts to lift him up. And Dr. Luke uses some terminology here. It's very interesting if you look in the commentaries. When he talks about this man's feet and ankles, he's being quite specific about the anatomy of the, of the, the, the extremities here. 
And this man's bones and tendons and muscles knit back together instantly, instantly. See, there is no way that a man who has been seated on the ground for 40 years is going to be able to stand up, even if, even if he is healed somehow of whatever is wrong with him, whatever ailment caused the, the lameness, he's got to spend a whole lot of time in PT before he's going to be able to stand up. This guy jumps up. Peter starts helping him up, and he leaps up off the ground. That's a miracle. Nobody's wondering if that's a miracle, right? And then, then this man enters the temple compound with Peter and John. It's easy to pass right over that, but think about what that means. This man is a Jew. He spent 40 years barred from access into the temple compound. Leviticus 21 says that no priest who was lame or blind or had a defect would be able to come into the temple compound. But the Mishnah that was written by the rabbis in around 200 AD said that nobody who was blind or lame or had a defect could come into the temple compound, in, into the, the formal area beyond that beautiful gate. Nobody could. They could beg outside but they couldn't come inside. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I can't imagine, I can't imagine what the temple leadership was thinking at that point. Luke goes out of his way to point out uh, the very public nature of this miracle. He makes it clear that everybody recognized this man as the one who had been sitting outside the beautiful gate every day forever. And he says they were all filled with amazement at what had happened to the man. I love the, that wording, what had happened to the man. <laughs> and the crowd wasn't merely watching, they were following. They followed, they ran together as this man was clinging to Peter and John and jumping up and down. They ran together as he went into the temple compound and they came after him. And so there was this crowd following these guys into the temple compound. And they were all filled with amazement. Now, what, what could be wrong with that response? Did you know that Peter rebukes them for that response? We see in the rebuke what was wrong with the response in, uh, in Acts 3.12. Peter saw this and he replied to the people, he said, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? <laughs> it's very ironic to me. When it came to miracles of the Holy Spirit done through Jesus and done through the, the apostles, uh, the Jews were masters of misplaced credit. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees said of Jesus, this man casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And now they conclude that these two fishermen healed a man lame from birth by their own 
power and piety. Peter and John, of course, made it very, very clear that that was not the case. <laughs> and their misplaced amazement, the Jews' mis misplaced amazement, became the excellent launch pad for Peter's second sermon, which fills the rest of chapter 3. And before we move on, I just want to mention that preachers, preachers who claim a special anointing of the Holy Spirit that enables them to perform miracles of healing, casting out demons, whatever, they're scam artists. They're charlatans, and you should pay them zero attention. What you should listen for, if you ever behold a miracle, is this. Why would you think it's by our power or our piety that this was done? You can go all the way back into the Old Testament. Look at, look at how Daniel responds after he's given, when he's given the ability to, to tell the king all about his dream. He is very, very careful to say, this didn't happen because of anything that comes from me. This is God. It's entirely and only God. When men take credit for themselves, when they claim special, when they claim special enablement from God that is somehow vested in themselves, that distinguishes them from other believers, they're scam artists. Don't pay, don't pay any attention to them. And by the way, generally, almost always, what they're really after is your money. There, there are men who have $47 million Learjets who call themselves representatives of Christ. These two guys had no silver or gold. What they did have was much more valuable. Be careful who you listen to. All right. The miracle and then the message. Verses 12 to 26, we find the message. And... And we find again, and I'm going to mention again, the purpose of miracles is clearly not to draw attention to men, and it is not even to draw attention to the miracle as an end in itself. It is to attest to God's message and to God's messengers. So what is the message? What's the message here? Well, the message that Peter lays out for us uh, is that there are four parts to it. The point, the problem, the command, and the promise. The point, the problem, the command, and the promise. First, the point. <laughs> what just happened here? Well, uh, Peter tells us, as he begins to, to address this crowd in verse 13, he says, here's what, here's what just happened. The God of Abraham, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned. So first thing, the, the point of this message and the, and the reason for the miracle, what actually happened in the miracle is that, that God was glorifying his son. God was glorifying his son. That's what, that's what they had just witnessed. The problem was that the people who had witnessed the miracle disowned the one that God was glorifying. They disowned the one that God glorified, his servant Jesus, and the one whom you delivered up 
and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you, and then he, he goes further, you disowned the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, Barabbas. It was spoken of in the worship this morning. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. The holy and righteous one, the one God glorified, the holy and righteous one, and the prince of life. The word that's translated prince in the phrase prince of life, if you look it up in the Greek lexicons, it actually, one of the most common meanings, and I believe the meaning that applies here, is originator, author, source. It's the very same word that's used in uh, Hebrews 12.2. Uh, sorry, let's start with Hebrews 2.10. Uh, Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting for him, Jesus, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. The author of their salvation, that means the, the source, the originator. And if you go to Hebrews 12, same word, uh, and verse C... Somebody help me here. I missed it. Three. Thank you. 12.3. For consider him who has endured such high hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not uh, grow weary and lose heart. And that's not what I'm looking for. Verse 2. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Okay. All right. I, I actually have this passage memorized. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the what? The author and perfecter of faith. Okay, so he is the source, the author, the source of salvation. He is the author and the source of faith, and he is the author, the source of life. And that's who they crucified. How do you crucify the source of life? Well, it has to be God's idea. Steve Lawson says this is the greatest irony the world has ever known. Putting to death the author of life. And he makes an excellent point. There's only one way that could happen, and that is if it's God's idea. And that's exactly, of course, what, what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, right? By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, the Lord of glory. And now, and now he's, he's saying the same thing. You disown the holy, of, holy and righteous one. You put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Now, the, the point of, of this message is that God glorified his son through this miracle. The problem is that the people who witnessed that glorification disowned the one whom God glorified, and Peter then takes that problem and he amplifies it. 
And he makes it very clear that God has been glorifying this same person ever since God has been talking to human beings. In this one passage, Peter refers to all four of the major Old Testament covenants that God made with Israel. All four. He talks about the fathers, the forefathers that were connected with each of those four covenants. In verse 22, he says, Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything. He says to you, and it shall be everything he says to you, and it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. By the way, when Moses wrote that, and then a long time later, the Muslims said that the, he was talking about Muhammad. Peter makes very clear here that he was talking about Jesus. I, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but it's amazing to me how the, how the Muslims call the Old and New Testaments holy books, and then they turn them into books that are full of lies. Full of lies from cover to cover. But this is not a lie. This, Jesus is the one that Moses was talking about. Moses was the one through whom God gave the Mosaic Covenant the law. Okay. Verse 24, likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. Samuel was the last of, last of the judges and the first of the prophets to the kings. Okay. Samuel is the one through whom God anointed King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to King David that we call the Davidic covenant. It was the promise that God would give to David a descendant whose dominion would be forever, who would reign in righteousness and justice, not just over Israel, but over all the nations, and his dominion would last forever. That promise is the promise of Jesus Moses was talking about Jesus. David was talking about, God was talking to David about Jesus. And the next, verse 25, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now he's backing up even further, going to, the, to Genesis chapter 12. And I think Genesis 22, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise was made to Abraham about Jesus. What Peter is doing here is masterful. He's saying, you disown the one that all the prophets talked about. Not just some of the prophets, all of the prophets. You disown the one that, that God's spokesman had been talking about ever since God has been talking to human beings. But it's very significant that, that the covenant he actually starts with here in verses 18 through 21 is the new covenant. I know I went out of sequence, but I, I was doing that for a purpose. Now listen, I'm going to start again in verse 14 and just read through. But you disown the holy and righteous one, and you ask for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life 
the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers also did. And before I read on, let me point out, he's not giving them an out here when he says you acted in ignorance. In fact, this whole sermon is an indictment that they are culpable for their rejection of Christ. But let's go on. You acted in ignorance just as your rulers did, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer... He is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. The period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. What is the period of the restoration of all things? Read Isaiah 60 and read Revelation 21 and 22. They talk about the exact same thing. They talk about the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, the place that Jesus has prepared to dwell with his people coming down out of heaven, made ready, adorned as a bride made ready for her husband. And, they, and in Revelation 21, Jesus says, I make all things new. Ephesians 1.10 calls the same, this same event that's coming the reconciliation of the things in heaven with the things on earth. The gather, literally, the gathering together under one head of the things in heaven and the things on earth. Beloved, that's the new covenant promise in Jesus Christ. I go through all that to point out what I've already said. The problem for this audience is that they had disowned and crucified the one that God had been talking to mankind about ever since God started talking to mankind. And they were in really big trouble. They're not alone. The call to every human being is the same. I loved it this morning when I can't remember if it was Sam or someone else said that that when when Jesus was nailed, I think it was a will, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, you know, I'm guilty of that too. I I drove those nails through his hands as surely as those Roman soldiers did, because it was for my sin too that he died. This passage is a very powerful exhortation to the whole world. It's directed at this point to the Jews, but it applies to every one of us. And the command, the last part of this, talked about the point and the problem. And they disown not just the one that God glorified, but the one God always glorified. And the command, what they had to do, what needed to happen, is repent and return. They needed to turn away from whatever kept them from trusting in Jesus and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
I mentioned before that the from side of that might like look different from for you than it did for the Jews of this era. But the to side always looks the same. The one that we turn to is always Jesus and him alone. Repent and return in order that your sins may be wiped away and the times of refreshing may come and the restoration of all things may come to you. When it comes, it'll be for you too. That's the, that is the, the call, the command of this passage, and that's the promise. Forgiveness and complete restoration exactly as God had promised over and over and over through his, the mouths of his holy prophets ever since he started talking to human beings. <laughs> the first instance of that promise was when God said in the garden, to Adam, to the, to the, basically to, to Satan, he said, that the seed of the woman will crush your head. And that promise has been expanded and amplified and developed and presented to mankind ever since in all manner of ways. The last thing I want to point out in this, uh, in this passage, well, before I get to the outcome, the last thing I want to point out about what Peter presented here is, uh, is the amazing grace that's directed toward the Jews here. Back in John chapter 5, when, as Jesus is indicting the Jews um, and telling them that they've missed the point of the, of the Scriptures and they've failed to recognize him for who he is, he says, these things I say to you that you might be saved. His purpose was gracious. And his purpose here is gracious. In verse 24, uh, verse 25, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. These harsh words, this scathing indictment is not meant, it's the, the intent of it is not first and foremost to condemn. The condemnation only applies to those who reject the message. But the appeal is, don't reject the, the message. The appeal is, put your faith in the one God's been talking about forever. Now, the, the outcome in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4, uh, there are really two outcomes, Right? <laughs> For some, rejection from some. For others, rebirth. Quite a few others. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain and the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees rejected the notion of resurrection. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. And then verse 4, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and it was a lot. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Every time you hear about the feeding of the 5,000, 
that means there are about at least 20,000 people there, right? Because the 5,000 was the men. And that's what we're, that's what we're looking at here. 3,000 people got saved on Pentecost. Now, just the men, number 5,000. So there's a lot of people. The church is growing like a wildfire. Most people will reject, the, will reject the truth. They will reject this glorious message. Many will not. God in every age touches many hearts, and he intends to use us the way he used Peter. Bear in mind, Peter and John did not have silver or gold. They had no power in themselves to turn a human heart. They had no sovereignty over anyone, just like you and me. But God used these two fishermen to save tens of thousands of people. And the church was just getting started. Just newborn. So God is able to do astonishing and magnificent things through you, through you. All we have to do is speak the truth in love. All we have to do is, is care more about what people think of Jesus than what they think of us. And let God worry about our well-being. It is well with our souls. Nobody can take anything away from us ever that will last for eternity. So whatever, whatever we lay down on God's altar, it's not given up. It's magnified. It's magnified. Uh, God wants to use all of us this way. Loving Father, thank you for this, uh, this very powerful second sermon of Peter, for the event that led up to it, for the demonstration of your authority and power over all creation. Thank you, Father, that you use just simple people to do mighty, eternally valuable works on this earth. And... And Donnie shared this morning about, about knowing that you had done a miracle in his life. Every single one of us is a miracle. Every single one of us sitting here today who knows Jesus Christ is an example of a far greater miracle than the healing, the temporary healing of lameness. Because that man eventually got old and his body started looking like mine. And, and then he died. But Father, every one of us who believes in Jesus has already crossed over out of eternal death into eternal life purely by the grace of our almighty God. And we get to, we get to, we get to grab the hands of other people and introduce them to the one who does that. Father, use us, speak through us, grow your church today as you grew it then. Thank you for saving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.